0: company and individual. He's outspoken when it comes to talking about the lack of diversity and inclusion, when it comes to venture capital, when it comes to technology and tech communities. Here with us is Chamath Palahapatiya. Did I say it right? Yeah. God, I've been practicing. He's founder and CEO of the VC firm Social Capital. I've actually been reading about you. Bloomberg Businessweek did a story about you guys last week. He's also owner and director of the NBA's Golden State Warriors uh, on site. Thank you. (laughs) And
1: and fresh off
0: a discussion about speaking out in Silicon Valley. Yeah, congratulations. Speaking out in Silicon Valley, we've done so many stories about the, the lack of inclusion, the lack of diversity. How do we make it better? in Um,
1: Silicon Valley? Well, I think part of what the Valley does is it actually is quite meritocratic in the sense that once people see something that's working, they actually copy it quite quickly. And so what we've tried to do is just be very honest about how to put the best team on the field or the court, you know, to use a basketball analogy, and then um, how to frankly just overperform. And once you see that, um, everybody tends to just say, okay, well, despite my bias, I'm just going to copy it because I also want to win. Um, and I think that's what we've been doing slowly. It's, it's the beginning. And I think, look, this is going to be a 30, 40-year decade journey, particularly to unwind a lot of calcification in our system. Like there is a lot of um, reasons to not change. And the biggest reason, quite honestly, is, you know, markets just work in tech. And so you can frankly be, um, you know, have a 1970s mentality. But if you have a reasonable brand, you'll perform reasonably for your investors who then have no reason to ask for change.
2: Well, and this is actually exactly where I was going to go. So you came up with an algorithm to kind of help you parse through some of the people who are looking for money so that you can remove any potential bias. Have you found that it is a much more diverse pool of businesses and founders than would have otherwise
1: gotten capital? We found two things. One is that they're they're much more diverse. Um, So in the first batch of companies we funded, 40% of the CEOs were women. 80% 80% were minorities. They were from 17 countries. They, these businesses were started in many states of the US that we would never have frankly even visited. Like what? Um, you know, like Ohio, Arkansas, South Carolina. So the point is that there is an entrepreneurial spirit everywhere in the world. And then it turns out that Silicon Valley has a way of building companies and that's worked, but there are also many other ways. Meaning many of the businesses that we ended up funding were almost near cash flow positive, almost break even, And so the quality of the businesses, the durability of the businesses were higher. Why? Because they couldn't count on anybody to be there. So they just had to be better. So all of this is to say that there are really important problems in the world that need to be solved. There's an amazing entrepreneurial spirit that increasingly exists all over the world. And we're trying to be a bridge. And by being a bridge, you know, it's not as if when you build a bridge between two points, you only let one type of car over the bridge. You want to maximize the utility of that thing. And in our case, maximizing it means not asking the dumb questions and asking the smart questions.
0: Well, I was thinking about what you said when you started talking to Lisa and myself initially. You said markets work in technology. So like people don't want to mess around, right, with the existing formula, but maybe they could be even better
1: if you had a much more diverse, inclusive... You are getting to the crux of um, what I think my goal is. First of all... My duration is 40 or 50 years, you know, touch wood that I am Mm -hmm. healthy into my 80s and 90s. But my second goal is in achieving our mission, I really want to set an example of being an exceptional investor of my generation, right? And in order to do that, I have to predictably compound and generate amazing returns for 40 or 50 years. And so how does one do that in a world that's dynamic and changing without using data and without constantly addressing one's own psychology? right? What are my biases? Maybe mm-hmm. I really love e-commerce, but frankly, it just doesn't work anymore. That's, that's, that's just as bad of a bias as saying, I don't want to fund women or minorities. Right? That's not the goal. An investor's goal is to win, period. And so you have to constantly force yourself to change, get out of your comfort zone so that you are always winning. We have to run
0: I hope you will come back because I think this is what you are doing is really fascinating. Uh, Chamath Palahapatiya, he is founder, CEO of the venture capital firm Social Capital and uh, having a good fun run with the uh, Golden State Warriors. Good luck.
1: I have two words to leave with you tonight, ladies and gentlemen. Inclusion rider.
0: So, everybody, that, of course, is actor Frances McDormand at this year's Oscar ceremony, accepting her award and referencing that term and idea, Inclusion writer Here to tell us about what it really means, how it can move the needle when it comes to diversity, inclusion, equality, is Stacey Smith, founder and director of the USC Annenberg Inclusion Initiative. It's a think tank studying diversity and inclusion in entertainment. And uh, she works with a bunch of partners. They do Google, Disney, John Templeton Foundation, and more. Great to have you here with Lisa Great and myself. to be here. Thanks. Tell me about that. When you heard Francis McDormand say that, what did that mean to you?
3: It was unbelievable and completely unexpected. Uh, I had no idea it was going to happen, and you could probably hear me screaming from Beverly Hills. right. all of us Googling yes. inclusion rider. Yes. What is that? Exactly. So that helped drive up the interest. So I appreciate all of those Google searches. Absolutely. So you created this. Idea. I did. I was and- sitting in my office one day, and I was thinking about year in and year out, the numbers never move. And there had to be a strategic way to to figure out how to push the needle um, using the leverage of the most notable people in town. And since actors uh, care about inclusion, Uh, I just thought to myself, what would happen if they embedded it in their contract? How can we protect the First Amendment and the storytelling but given that films feature so many characters, there has to be a way to diversify those stories without touching the sovereignty of the story.
0: How does it work though? Because it's not a quota you're looking for. It's absolutely
3: not and it's not affirmative affirmative action. So we partnered with Kalpana Katagel at Cohen Milstein, an entertainment attorney, to ensure that the language was flexible which is really important in terms of the the, uh, affirmative action argument. How it works is it's a provision in an actor's contract. There's a whole series of provisions. There's a template online at our website at the Annenberg Inclusion Initiative. And what it basically tells casting directors is that they have to slow down, audition women and people of color uh, for all supporting roles in a story, if it makes sense. So if it's a historical story, they get a pass. But if it's not, that story should look like the demography of wherever the narrative is taking place. So if it's Atlanta, Georgia, it should look like Atlanta, Georgia. And if there's just straight, white, able-bodied males in Atlanta, Georgia, I would argue we might have a problem. So the inclusion rider really causes casting directors who are often white women... To slow down and rethink how they audition, uh, and then who gets thrust into those roles. Have there been any movies that have used this, and have you seen the results as a result? Not yet, um, to, to the best of my knowledge. Right? I mean, once the Academy Awards happened, that term went viral. We put the we open sourced the data. Um, there were three of us primarily working on on the inclusion writer. Kalpana, as I've mentioned, Fanchin, Cox, Giovanni from Pearl Street Films, my team, we all made a decision to open source it so that that template in that language could be used by any actor and their attorney moving forward. So if they bring us on board for compliance to see if the provisions of the writer were actually implemented um, and used as negotiated, we would know. But if they don't, we don't know. So um, sometimes it's word of mouth. We hear about it. Uh, but I'm waiting for six to nine months to go by to see who's going to use it and then what impact it you has. You know, Lisa
0: and I talk about that there are people who go out there and say, oh, yeah, I'm going to do the right thing, blah, blah, blah. And they never do it. Right. You know, what are you finding how the conversation, how the actions have changed maybe over the last year when it comes to inclusion in Hollywood?
3: Well, the needle. fairness and equality. Absolutely. The needle is not moving. So let's be really clear. I mean, on screen in 11 years, no change. And
0: pa- Black Panther is one movie.
3: Absolutely. And Disney should be commended, though. It's yeah. not just Black Panther, it's Coco. Milan is coming. Captain Marvel, with a female lead as a superhero and a female co-director behind the camera. So we're seeing steps, but until those six multinationals all set target inclusion goals, tackle the levers that are driving inequality, start hiring differently on screen and behind the camera, those need that, those numbers won't move. And so while we're seeing, you know, small anecdotal signs of success. We need to see more movement and folks taking a step in the right direction.
2: Yeah, you know, when you talk about some of these movies, you think about Moana, for example, Mm -hmm. also adding to that. And they've been the most successful of all the movies. So this isn't just a matter of feeling good. It's It's actually, like, good for the bottom line. Right, (laughs)
3: right. And we know that large budgets, uh, movies that tell compelling stories that are critically reviewed well, and when they're put in a lot of theaters, those stories are given a chance to fly. Independent of the gender or the race, ethnicity of the lead character.
2: So, you know, when you first started saying we took a look at the numbers and we wanted to make things more fair, I wasn't sure if you were going to just the demographics or whether you were talking about the pay inequality in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Have you addressed that at all? And does this uh, sort of inclusion
3: rider deal with that? Well, I think the inclusion rider is a tool that can start the conversation. That pay data is private data. Right. But there's no reason under which actors and we've seen this already in the press, actors can start having conversation with the people that they're in in movies or television shows or or streaming stories in and ask and have those conversations about pay and and where salaries are being set. Because the more transparency we have, the more we can set the playing field. But right now, all of that data is private. And the onus is oftentimes on those actors to have those conversations. Do
0: you feel like things are changing? Yes and no. Because I feel like as a woman who's been having these conversations for many years, um, the needle certainly in the business community is taking a long time to change. And we still don't see a lot of women, right, in the CEO suite and so on. But do you feel like something is different this time around?
3: Uh, Like I said, yes and no. It makes (laughs) me nervous. I mean, I'm I'm optimistic. And I think what Disney has been doing um, has been notable. I think of films like Hidden Figures, right, that Mm -hmm. hit it out of the ballpark domestically and very strong internationally. So in that respect, I want to say yes. But that's why the data are so important, because oftentimes our thoughts are driven by these high-profile examples. The number but of McKinsey
0: has had data out there for years Absolutely. talking about put women Absolutely. in the C-suite, put them but, on the board, and your companies but, will do better. And yet, yet... The
3: data doesn't move people. Right. Right, right. And so we do these reports. But, but what has happened in entertainment, a lot of folks haven't hit the levers that are driving inequality. Until those levers are hit, yeah. the reasons why this happens, things won't change.
2: Well, and I think that also part of this is that in Hollywood, for example, it's not really sympathetic for somebody uh, like Jennifer Lawrence to say, well, I'm only making $10 million, whereas he's making $15 million. That doesn't resonate in the same way. Uh, but are there consequences beyond just the richest becoming richer in Hollywood.
3: Well, I think we need to standardize the entire process, right? And the one thing about that argument that was really important is that we always need to compare male to female. A lot of times people want to look back and see, weren't things better in the past? And that's the wrong in comparison. Male to female. So whether it's Silver Linings Playbook, American Hustle, or any other film, Jennifer Lawrence is right. She should be comparing herself to her male peer in the same position, and it should be equal independent of the level.
0: I agree. Stacy Smith, and I don't know if we come back to you in a year, we just got about 30 seconds left here. What do you hope is happening with the Inclusion Rider?
3: Uh, that it's attached to tax incentives uh, in the, the 10 most um, important states in this country for film production, and we'll see massive change within three to five years.
2: That would be powerful. All right. Talk is that it. with high conviction? <laughs> Indeed.
3: Indeed. <laughs> I will be back to tell you about All it. All right. Fabulous. Fabulous. Amen.
0: <laughs> Stacy Smith, thank you so much for carving out some time for us. Absolutely. It's great to be here. Greatly appreciated. Stacey Smith, she's founder and director at the USC Annenberg Inclusion Initiative. Check them out. Check them out. I should say, online and uh, really fascinating stuff. All right, you are listening to Bloomberg Markets. Carol Masser, along with Lisa She's got a big smile on her face. Yeah, it that was, was a fun. Great conversation. Yes. We
2: are broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Business of Equality Summit, and I am so pleased to bring in one of the panelists, Alicia Garza, co-founder of Black Lives Matter. She is with us here in our 731 Lexington Avenue headquarters. Thank you so much for being
4: here. Thanks for having me.
2: So I want to start with kind of a state of play, because the movement has been around since 2013 and uh, has gone through quite a period in American history, oh, over a pretty pretty yeah. formative couple of years, right. so where are we right now, and do you feel like we have gone backwards since that pivotal two thousand and thirteen moment when you penned that Facebook love letter?
4: You know, I think where we are now is in the midst of a social and political transformation. And unfortunately, some of that transformation is very painful in the sense that we're really seeing um, some things that were really kind of buried underneath or at least under the surface really come up to the light. And so I know for a lot of people, they're looking around and saying, what happened to my country? And the reality is these things have always been here. But what we should know about what we're doing moving forward is making sure that we're fighting to change the balance of power in this country. We don't get to dealing with uh, police shootings or the killings of unarmed black people without really changing policy and changing culture and changing politics. And essentially all of that is about changing how power operates.
0: Can we change that? Power has been pretty entrenched for a while, and I think that really does explain the tension, the frustration that we are currently seeing right now.
4: I think we can absolutely change it, and frankly, it's changing. So I know, we, you know, in the last couple of days, we've heard some really heart-wrenching stories about um, exposing some injustices that have happened both with women and powerful men um, in in industries with workers and and management. And I think what we're seeing right is that. Power is changing. I mean, if it wasn't, we wouldn't be seeing these things be exposed. We wouldn't be seeing people stepping forward and being courageous enough to speak up and say, "Not me again, and nobody else again." And now, what we have to do is move into a period where we're really changing who's representing us, who's making decisions on our behalf, and then also, how are we participating in the decisions that are being made about our lives and our futures? I want to talk about
2: your role representing uh, people who consider themselves. Black. And I can imagine it's challenging because it's an incredibly diverse group of people Mm. within that label. Mm -hmm. And so what are some of the tensions that you've dealt with as far as sort of differing
4: points of view within Mm. that huge category? Sure. Well, I mean, part of what it means to build movement is that you're bringing in people with various perspectives about where we are and where we need to go. And in some ways, it's a beautiful challenge because ultimately what we're trying to build is a community of people that feel responsible for one another and for each other's futures. And so where there are tensions, for example, I think it has a lot to do with just getting to know each other again. Lots of the ways in which black communities are portrayed is very two-dimensional and flat. And what we're seeing and learning more about is that black communities are everything, everyone, and everywhere. Black communities are immigrants. We're women. We're lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. We live in rural areas. We live in cities. I mean, there's lots of nuances to who black communities are. And so whoever is successful at bringing all of these components together with a shared vision and a set of shared goals is really going to win the day.
0: How frustrated are you when you look at the U.S. Congress and you see mostly white men? (laughs) It motivates me, to be honest
4: with you. Does it
0: motivate the black population at large? I
4: think so. I mean, I I had the pleasure of being at the United State of Women this weekend in Los Angeles, and we were just talking about how black women voted at higher rates than any other group in the last three election cycles, but yet we're severely underrepresented in U.S. Congress. We're only 6% of U.S. Congress. So that means that white men are making decisions about all of us, but they're not the majority. So. So that's yeah. why we've really got to invest in changing the balance of power in this country. Have you had any conversations with the current leadership in Congress at all? <laughs> with,
3: <laughs> well,
4: I mean, I'm, I'm not just talking about, Smile, laugh, laugh, and in pause. Pause. yeah, in pause, <laughs> loaded pause. <laughs> You know, we are in touch with our state and local representatives. We're also in touch with our representatives at the federal level. And I think we're all trying to figure out how do we build a new front that is able to transform what's happening in this country right now. And as you said, it's not just about one person. It's really about a clash of values and vision for where we go from here. And so we're really looking for natural and unnatural allies who all align that we need to get to someplace different. So I I want to touch on Kanye West because we um, have heard a lot about Kanye
2: West and President Trump using him as sort of uh, the speaker uh, to represent sort of
4: black Republicans. Um, What's been your reaction to that? You know, doesn't it signify how powerful this movement is when the president of the United States is grasping for straws for somebody from our population to say they support him? That's the way I <laughs> Does, think Is about that what it. that represents? I, that's the way I think about it. I mean, honestly, I think if this movement wasn't so powerful, there wouldn't be such a push to try and break some of us off to move to a different side of the aisle. And to be frank, um, you know, Kanye, I think... Um, has the right to have his own opinions. Unfortunately, his vision for the future of this country is not one that I share, and it's not one that millions and millions of Americans share. So I hope that at some point he can um, come back to to the other side.
0: If I can, just for a moment, because we have about a minute left, go back to 2013 when you wrote that letter on Facebook and you ended it with, our lives matter, black lives matter. Did you have any idea... (laughs) And and the reaction that you got.
4: No, I had no idea. But I can tell you I'm grateful for it every day. Um, It it means something to me that um, so many hearts and minds have been touched in this way. And again, as I was telling you about this weekend in L.A. with the United State of Women, I was really moved by how many young people are involved in this movement. And it makes me feel hopeful for the future. It's really interesting.
5: I
2: just want to really quickly. Do you think that... uh, the black population is sort of intimately connected to Democrats because that was sort of implied in what you were saying. I know we have uh, just got about 20, 20 seconds. I know I'm getting dirty bucks. Uh, yes and no. <laughs> wow! <laughs> wait, you've got fifteen more seconds. <laughs> totally loaded. I know. Lisa, and she maybe, She answered. I know. I'm sorry. That right, right, was wait, my bad. Right, so more get to the yes, meat yes or more
4: no? Uh, depends on how the Democratic establishment moves in this period.
0: Yeah, it's kind of a critical time, I feel like. I mean, you know, I do believe that things have to get kind of bleak and disrupted, if you will, to hopefully get to a better situation. That's right. My fingers are crossed. Yes, mine too. Good luck with um, what you're doing. Thank
4: you so much. Great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Alicia Garza, she's co-founder of Black Lives Matter, on-site at the Bloomberg Business of Equality Summit, here with myself and Lisa Abramowitz. The girls, let's say for the women, kind of like that. Uh, Many things that have been cited over the decades about what holds women back. Education, access, opportunities, networks, speaking up, leaning in. There's so many things that have been uh, cited over the years. Let's talk about, though, the new myths that are holding women back. It's something she spoke about earlier at the Bloomberg Business of Equality Summit at Bloomberg headquarters here in New York. Carolyn Tastad is Group President, North America at Procter & Gamble. Thank you so much for being a part of this a event. A pleasure
6: to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: I was curious when I saw um, the title for what you were talking about. What are the new myths <laughs> that are holding women back? Because there's been so many things cited over the decades. There have been so many things
6: cited. And as we think about the myths, the only distinction is that we have really tried to look at those things in the last 12 to 24 months that have become the narratives the very common narratives that you hear as you talk to people that that often preface well I would love to get more women in my organization and in the C suite except <laughs> but there you go uh, you know and there's one that's fairly pervasive right now and we call it the fix the women myth in in that you know women are just lacking in some way right they lack confidence they lack ambition uh, they lack the ability to take risks, and so if if they would just uh, do more, be more, or change, they'd get ahead. And so the fix I'm the women. Bristling, cause I'm bristling because I'm thinking. Are you bristling? Have you heard much? that before,
0: though? <laughs> I just. Uh, well, I but, mean,
2: on one hand, I'm I'm bristling. On the other hand, you know, is there some truth to uh, you know not asking for that raise or not being confident enough to go in and say I can do that
6: project? So yeah. come on. Well, let me give you an example of what happens. So here's the thing on confidence. So uh, this, this is going to be fun. The, <laughs> the, uh, We're not the, going four minutes. We're going a half hour. Yeah, I'm sorry. There's, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of studies, right? There's a lot of studies that show uh, that men tend to overestimate their abilities and women tend to underestimate their abilities. Men will apply to jobs with some of the qualifications. Women will apply to jobs with all of the qualifications. Many years ago, uh, HP did a study, and they've refreshed this. And, you know, if there were five job qualifications, the man applied when they had two to three qualifications. The woman applied when they had, didn't apply when she had four. Hmm. Okay, so you take a look at that, and you go, great. The woman didn't apply when she had four. The man applied with two to three. Therefore, the woman lacks confidence. That's what this whole thing started with. Right. I know you're going with this. Maybe so, it's the man is too so confident. you could say... Even if you, you know, let's just put that aside for a minute and say, great, this is a confidence gap. We've got to deal with this. But I want to know what we call the other side of it because we've written books about confidence gap. There are lectures given about confidence gap. Google it. You can find all kinds of articles. But let me stop and say on this other side, do we talk about overestimation, overconfidence? Do we talk about um, inappropriately thinking about it? Whatever you want to call that, right? Right. I haven't read that book. I haven't seen that book. So, again, what tends to happen is, and, and it's, you know, it's based in social science, right? We tend to say the definition of normal is based on what we see. Right. So, if somebody applied both the two or three, this is just the easiest example, that's normal. So, if somebody doesn't do that, it's- that's the gap, right? So, that's what's not normal. And so, that's partly what created this whole narrative. So, if that's the new narrative... If, many, many studies have also been done that said women are just as confident. They're just as ambitious. Right. They ask for raises as many times as men do. But it might show up differently because we do behave differently. We do. Okay, so...
2: Since you are the group president of North America for Procter & Gamble, let's talk about some of the brands that you have, because sure. they are typically uh, associated with household types of chores, uh, yep. and that gets into the divide between men and women. Also, um, yes. hint, hint, if my husband is listening, yes, please do the dishes. Uh, so Bounty uh, or Charmin or right. Crest or some of these sure. sort of uh, household products. So, you know, when I watch the commercials, a lot of time there,
6: times the woman is in charge of the household. How do you balance sort of the portrayal there, you know, we we, we think very. We believe in this stuff. We believe in equality, really deeply rooted in our values. And uh, as we've thought about this, we've said, "What are some of the ways that we can truly have a great impact on on what we do? What are the ways we can uniquely impact this agenda?" Well, as the world's largest advertiser, we can uniquely impact this positively or negatively, and we want to impact it positively. Uh, and so we are we are working. We're not perfect, but we're working very hard (laughs) to be very intentional and deliberate in how we cast, in the roles that people play. Most Swiffer ads show a man Swiffering, if you look at it. If you take a look at laundry, Tide, you'll see men and women doing laundry. You'll see multi-generational households. You'll, you know, you'll see multiculture. You have to advertise to multicultural society. That's just who we are. Because I will
0: tell you, I have a 15 year old daughter, and she'll notice. And she'll absolutely, say, how come they're showing the woman doing absolutely. this? Absolutely, and, and that's your future consumer. Yeah. And and she's of the ilk that is going to you buy a it. product because she likes what the company's about. It's, it's so important. It's so important. I told you I wish we had 30 minutes.
6: Ah, ah, This has been fun. Thank you.
0: Come back. Come back. Because I feel like this is going to be a discussion that we will all be having and should be having. for the months to come, you know, the years to important. come.
6: We didn't even talk about Tide
0: Pods. <laughs>
2: no, I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> I'm just kidding.
0: <laughs> um, a very great brand. <laughs> Carolyn, not <laughs> it is the, I use it. I've been using Excellent. it for years. Grew up with it. I do as well. <laughs> Carolyn Tastad, thank you so much. Thanks very much. Really appreciate it. Group President, North America at P&G, on-site at the Bloomberg Business Equality Summit here at Bloomberg Headquarters. I'm Carol Masser along with Lisa Bromowitz.
1: I'm in my car.
2: our producer, Paul Brennan, is seeing if uh, he can make me dance, and so he's doing a pretty good job with drive to the close. Right now, uh, we are looking at just a little red across the board, all the major indexes in the U.S. Uh, just slightly in the red, we'll see whether they can climb positive heading into the close here uh, on Wall Street at 4 p.m. I want to bring in our next guest who can give us a sense of uh, why the market is not responding more to some of the headlines that we're getting that are Somewhat bombastic and uh, you know have, carry a lot of weight, and that is uh, Wayne Wicker, Chief Investment Officer of ICMARC, standing for International City Management Association Retirement Corporation, overseeing 33 billion dollars. He joins us here in our New York headquarters. Wayne, why does the market not seem too too concerned about the Iran deal and uh, President Trump's announcement, and you know, pretty pretty bold language
0: there?
5: Well, it was, Lisa, but I, I have to say that uh, the market seems to be looking past a lot of this. Uh, I think they're getting used to the president coming out with bold statements uh, on a broad array of topics. And uh, you saw the market sell off a little bit last week in anticipation for some of these concerns. But obviously, it's going to be a long time in, uh, coming in terms of what the ramifications are of pulling out of this deal. So the market uh, is, had priced the worst in for uh, energy, and uh, now... Uh, I think it's going to be wait and see. It's going to take a wait and see attitude. So
0: energy, is that an area you like?
5: Energy is an area that we've liked. We've liked it for a long time. Uh, you've seen the price of uh, crude oil go from like the, the low th- low 40s or high 30s up to uh, where it is today at $69 over a period of time. That bodes well for energy companies over the long run. The
0: major oil giants the or major, what's the play well, here? Well, I
5: think that uh, a broadly based uh, uh, oil exposure companies as opposed to natural gas and uh, so some of the conglomerates uh, whether it is a chevron or an exxon mobil you know exxon mobil hasn't uh, done well this year it's down about seven percent but there's reason to believe that over a long period of time for long-term investors that could be a really nice play
2: all right. So we, we talked about uh, President Trump and his announcement, but what we haven't talked that much about is what's been going on in Argentina, which is kind of leading the charge lower. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just I want to turn there because we found out today that the International Monetary Fund is in talks with Argentina to extend uh, a credit line to them to support the peso that's been absolutely falling out of bed. Is this a buying opportunity? Do you want to delve into
6: Argentina, Wayne?
5: So Argentina is going to be fraught with risk. I think you have to be a professional investor to really think about where there are actually values versus value traps. And uh, so in all emerging markets, we we do find emerging markets in general uh, pretty attractive.
2: Now or you did before the sell-off and you still do?
5: Uh, I think that we've felt over the last year uh, emerging markets have been attractive. You know, it's come under a little pressure with uh, the strength of the dollar recently. But I think Bottom-up, stock-by-stock, uh, uh, if you have somebody who is professionally managing an active fund, uh, they're going to find some great opportunities outside the United States.
0: What are the biggest changes that you guys have made in terms of allocations over the last six months, 12 months?
5: Yeah, so I, th- I think, Carol, in that area... if you're a
0: long-term investor. You've got right. to think long-term, and I get that. Mm-hmm. I mean, right? We're all supposed to be long-term investors, mm-hmm. but you still make changes. You still make... Um, you know, a little tinkering, if you will, to those uh, asset allocations.
5: Where we, where we see the best opportunity to make some changes right now is on the fixed income side. And we've been, over the last 12 months, shortening our duration, increasing our quality, and probably don't have quite as much exposure to maybe things such as high yield or some of the lower quality credits that are out there.
2: So uh, that means that you are sh- still selling high yield or you just aren't buying?
5: I think in a core portfolio, uh, you will see that we're typically reducing the duration and not going after some of those higher yielding credits. We do, we do run a high yield fund, and in that particular uh, fund, we, we continue to be full on in terms of uh, the mandate. But in those areas where we have a multi sector approach, those would not be areas of emphasis for us.
0: You know, I feel like what? <laughs> well, no, I just, you know, it's so
2: interesting because people have been sort of cautious all year. And yet there is no sign of corporate distress. And we're right. seeing these really good earnings coming out of corporations. And I'm just wondering, at what point is it, is it like,
0: all right, throw caution to the wind. Let's go. Because we are at this juncture. That, no, and that's kind of what I was going to say to you is because I feel like we have these conversations where I can bring in 10 people, five are going to say things are fine, we're going to continue to see you know, positive momentum, and five who said, nope, the best is over. Mm-hmm. You know, and you need to really kind of rein in your exposure to risk. I mean, it's just an interesting market time, right? Well, like I so, just-
5: so here, Carol, I'm going to do both for you, okay? Right. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you. You can't
0: on, sit on the fence. <laughs> on the fixed income
5: side, you 've to want to be uh, a lot more cautious on, on fixed income. On the equity side, I would say that uh, people forget that we've done a lot of things on fiscal policy, both with deregulation that's going on as well as tax cuts. And we haven't seen, we saw a really great quarter, right? We're just getting done with the first quarter that was really great. I would say on the equity side, we're still uh, uh, not to the end of uh, what I would consider to be that 10 year bull market that we've had. So on the equity side of things, I I still feel like investors are gonna be a little bit scared out uh, over the summertime with midterm elections. But as we get into the second half of this year, history would suggest equities ought to be okay.
2: There's a myth uh, that, or Rick Reeder of uh, BlackRock said that there was a myth that the uh, tax cuts wouldn't necessarily uh, add to the economy that much. He said this is a myth and that will have a much greater effect on the economy just in 20 seconds. Do you agree with him?
5: I totally agree with that. And I don't think you're going to see the impact of that until 2019.
0: 2019. All right. We'll have to keep. Uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. You might have to get off the fence though a little bit. <laughs> well, no it's, it <laughs> actually,
2: yeah. no, it's actually an important point because yeah. it's sort of the barbell approach, yeah. right? Taking off risk in uh, the fixed income side and keeping things in dry Exposure powder the- uh, while taking risk on the equity side.
0: Yeah. Wayne Wicker, thank you so thank much. You. Appreciate it. Wayne Wicker, he's chief investment officer at ICMA RC International City Management Association Retirement Corporation, thirty-three billion in assets under management, based in Washington. In our New York headquarters. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You could subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.